And I'd like to welcome the Binkley family. I see them out there on the labyrinth. I don't know if they can hear us, but good morning. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. In the summer of 2008, uh, I was living in Nashville, Tennessee, and I was just finishing my first year of graduate school at Vanderbilt Divinity. And most of my life, when I had lived away, I had went home for summers, at least for a portion of time to visit with family. But this particular summer, this was going to be the first summer where I just kind of stayed where I was at and spent time with my friends and took some summer courses and just enjoy myself in Nashville. And one of my favorite things to do throughout the years has been to go see movies. I love movies. And so me and a group of friends, we went to Hillsboro Village. There was a theater there, and we decided we were going to see a movie. And I hate to tell you that there was nothing memorable about the movie that we actually saw. I don't remember what it was, but I remember as I was walking in, seeing a poster, one of those posters that has the lights all around it and coming soon above it. And I remember seeing this poster for Iron Man. Now, this poster stuck out to me. Because I was familiar with this character from comic books and from cartoons when I was a child. But I remember seeing Robert Downey Jr.'s face on this poster. And I thought, this is going to be absurd. How are they going to make a live action film about a billionaire that flies around in a metal suit? You know, with gadgets and shooting things out of the air. And I know everyone who knows more about comic books is going to come and roast me for my description right now. I'm trying to avoid looking to this section of the room. But I remember when I finally saw the movie, it clicking for me and going, this is, wow, this is really amazing. And this movie that was shot for $140 million went on to make almost $600 million in the theater. A proof of concept that this could work, this kind of storytelling. And I probably don't have to tell you, but for the last decade and a half, we have been inundated with these kind of films, superhero stories, over and over and over again. I had to check this week. I had to do some research. The last 10 years, over half of the top 50 grossing films have been superhero films. And if we widen our definition of what a superhero is, apart from just comic book heroes... When we start to consider Star Wars and Lord, Lord of the Rings uh, and Jurassic Park, almost the entire list of top grossing films for the last decade have been about people with superhuman capabilities solving problems that no one else can solve. We go to the theater for this kind of fantasy We read these kind of books and tell these kind of stories because they paint a picture for us in an uncertain world of how we would like the world to be. Of knowing that even when things get bad, even when someone shows up with some sort of evil plan, there is some sort of counterbalance or answer. We know that in the end, everything is going to be okay. And it's all going to be solved with superhuman strength. And I think these kind of stories are fine for fantasy. It's not just the last 10 years that we've been telling these kind of stories. These kind of stories have been told all throughout, all throughout human history. And yet, 
I am a little worried that this is also how we treat our faith and how we read the scriptures. We don't have time to do this this morning, but it would be interesting before this part of the sermon if I would have taken a survey of the congregation to tell me what your favorite passage of scripture is. Tell me what your favorite story is. And I can guarantee you that probably half of us would have told some fantastic story about the Red Sea being split, about Moses holding up his staff and the Israelites winning as long as he could have this physical strength to hold his hands up, of Joshua asking for the sun to stand still so that the Israelites could win a battle. Moving to the New Testament of Jesus having fantastic power to raise the dead, to heal uh, the blind and the lame and the sick. We turn to these kind of stories because once again they give us some amount of certainty. Perhaps this is not a fantasy. Perhaps there is a superhero that can come and save the day when everything else feels impossible. But I'll be honest with you. The older that I get the less drawn I am to superhero stories and the more drawn I am to human stories. I think about the stories in the Scripture that I really connect with. I think about Moses standing in front of a burning bush, hearing the voice of the Lord and still saying, I'm, I'm not talented enough. I'm not a good enough speaker. I think about the psalmist crying out, How long, O Lord, will evil prevail? I think about Martha and Mary and their disappointment and complaining to Jesus. If only you would have gotten here sooner, my brother wouldn't have died. I think about Jesus standing outside of the tomb of his friend and weeping. I think about the disciples in the Gospel of Matthew who, after they had watched the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, after seeing all of these things firsthand, there is still this little line, as Jesus is ascending, and still some of them doubted. These are the stories that I connect with because I am human and I am imperfect and I am flawed and you probably are too. And sometimes I think that we try to escape this or try to avoid it or we try to believe that there is someone strong enough where we won't have to be human anymore. And yet, if I'm honest, the scriptures were never meant to be a telling of superhuman strength. They were supposed to be a record of regular humans like you and I, dependent upon and seeking relationship with a God that loved them despite whatever else was happening in their lives. Which is why I love the passage that we have read this morning. John the Baptist is his own character, right? He is well known. You can probably picture him. You probably do it automatically when John the Baptist, when that name is said. Perhaps you imagine kind of a wild man dressed in camel's hair, eating wild honey and locust down by the Jordan River, rebuking the religious folks over there and calling the rest of the people to come and to be baptized, preparing the way of the Lord out in the wilderness. He is one of those giants of faith. And most of the stories that we read in the scripture give us this same picture, except the story that we have read this morning. And to be honest with you, even though I baptize people occasionally, I connect with this John more than I connect with the other pictures of John that we encounter in the scripture. John is imprisoned. He does not know if he will ever be free. He does not know 
that he will be put to death very soon after this story. And he is sitting there in this prison cell and he is reflecting on his own life and he is wondering if he has hitched his wagon to the wrong star. And he gets his own disciples and he sends a message to Jesus and he asks this question. Are you the one? Were you really the one that we were all waiting for? Would I be in prison here if I was following the right person? Would my life be at risk if you truly were the Messiah? Or should we wait for another? I love this picture of John because I would be asking the very same question if I was in his spot. I'd be wondering about if I had followed the right person, if I had placed my faith in the right place, if I had made a mistake. And you know what? I wonder, I wonder why we read this passage in Advent, this time of expectation and hope for a coming of a Messiah that you and I know. And I think if we just push forward past this doubt in the first part of this passage, we can get to the good part where Jesus answers his question and lists off his resume. And Jesus is fulfilling. His resume sounds a lot like he is fulfilling the prophets of old that talked about a Messiah that would come and heal the blind and recover the deaf and raise the dead. Jesus' resume sounds a lot like this. And there are a thousand million other sermons to preach that I could preach today but I would like to invite you to stay here in this prison cell with me just a little bit longer. To sit down beside John in the midst of his doubt. To reflect upon what you would do if you were in his position. To think about the questions that you have asked, maybe even this week. Is this all real? What am I doing when I go to church? This difficulty is happening in my life Is God even here or listening as I'm going through this? I love that we read this passage in Advent because I think it helps us to see, it invites us to know that doubt is both normal and necessary. In fact, I would go even further to say that it is healthy. Doubt is a necessary ingredient to faith and I grew up in a community where I was told I needed to be certain about everything all of the time, which led me to great anxiety and worry. I still had doubt, I just wasn't allowed to say it out loud. But doubt does something important for us. Doubt invites us to ask better questions. Doubt leads us to deeper faith. And doubt, doubt causes us to lay down harmful practices that we have held on because of tradition, because someone else just told us, this is the way that you follow God, and this is the way that you be righteous or holy. And if we did not have doubt to understand that sometimes some of the things that we have done have harmed our neighbor, we would not have laid them down. And so I think doubt is a good thing. And I invite you to join John in this moment. A friend of mine called me a few years ago. A friend of mine who, for a period of time, had much stronger faith than I had. A friend of mine who had inspired me. As Paul said, I followed this friend as he followed Christ. And I remember this call. We had actually set an appointment because he told me, this is going to take a while. I need to share some things with you. And he talked to me about all of the things that were going on in his life and all of the reasons he did not think he could believe in God any longer. 
And he told me at the end of this conversation, I just don't think my faith is workable. I don't think my faith is workable. We sat there in silence for a few moments. And then I told him this. If it's not workable, you should lay it down and go and be in search of a better faith, one that is workable, one that strengthens you, one that draws you closer to God, and one that causes you to love your neighbor more. Because if you're holding on to a faith that is not actually workable, then it's just an accessory. It is just something, it's a performance that we just put on to show other people, to conform to whatever we believe to be acceptable. But my friends, faith is more, is, is about more than simply conforming. It is about being transformed more and more into the image of God that already resides inside of you. It just needs the dust and rust shaken off of it. And so during this season of Advent, on this third Sunday of Advent, I invite you not to hurry along to Christmas, to sit down in this prison cell, to get comfy beside John, to embrace 